Ever since the disease was recognized more than 100 years ago, patients with Alzheimer's and their families and caregivers have longed for an effective drug for this brutal and tragic disease. But last month, when the Food and Drug Administration finally approved a drug named Aduhelm for use as the first Alzheimer's drug in 18 years, there was little rejoicing. Instead, a big uproar from critics both outside and inside the FDA who say that there's no clear evidence that the drug has any benefits and that it could actually have serious side effects, including brain bleeding. And at $56,000 a year per patient and counting, they say it not only will break patients and their families, but stress Medicare to the brink. That's the federal health care for the elderly and disabled. Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is Techtopia. Today, I've invited two wonderful guests to help us understand what just happened at the FDA, the implications, the fallout, and what happens next. Dr. Robert Pearl is the former CEO of the nation's largest medical group, Kaiser Permanente. His latest book is called Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. The proceeds of the book go to Doctors Without Borders. Dr. Pearl also co-hosts with Jeremy Kaur, who happens to be my wonderful executive producer, the popular podcasts, Fixing Healthcare and Coronavirus, The Truth. Also joining me is my very dear friend and former colleague, the award-winning health and science writer, Joanne Silberner. She's currently a freelance journalist living in Seattle. Silberner has covered the FDA for decades while at US News and World Report and at NPR, where she worked for 18 years. Joanne has written a piece on how Aduhelm came to be approved, published last week in the online media outlet Stat Plus. And it's a fascinating look at how the FDA responds to pressure from drug companies and patient groups. Very relevant for the story. Dr. Pearl and Joanne, welcome to Techtopia. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for hosting. Dr. Pearl, this disease, what makes it so terrible and why has there been no drug for 18 years? This is a terrible problem. It accounts for 60% of dementia cases, currently affects over 6 million Americans and likely to increase in the future with the aging of the population. Once diagnosed, it has about a three to nine year life expectancy, uh, which is a significant decrease. And it all depends upon at what age you develop the symptoms. What you see is progressive memory loss. It begins short term and often is hard to dis differentiate from the type of memory difficulties older people can have, but it then progresses to the point where the individual becomes unable to even remember events from long in the past, or to take care of themselves. And I think the real terribleness of this disease, why people are so afraid of it, is that you lose complete control. I mean, the fact that as your memory goes away, you don't realize it's going away. It puts you totally dependent upon others. It inflicts hardships on families. It inflicts uh, problems on the society overall. So this is a terrible problem needing an answer. The challenge is scientists still don't fully understand its origin. What we do know is that in a large number of patients, there's a protein called amyloid beta that accumulates, and it's felt that this may interfere with the brain functioning. 
The challenge, of course, is that there are some people who develop Alzheimer's disease without having these brain plaques. And there are other people who have brain plaques that can be identified on various radiologic studies that don't have Alzheimer's disease. So no drugs are there because we haven't figured out exactly what causes it. And all the drugs that might be available, we have no evidence that they are significantly efficacious, although there are a couple on the marketplace that do seem to slow the disease ever, ever so slightly. Joanne, you've covered drug approvals and the FDA for decades, but you also have a deeply personal lens into this uh, Alzheimer's drug because of your dad's own struggle with Alzheimer's. And I, and I watched you go through that over the over several years. And you've been through what millions of families are going through in dealing with parents or siblings or relatives with Alzheimer's. What did that teach you and how does it inform your coverage of the story? I would say that it inspired me to really pay attention because there's such real world effects to the prospect of a drug, to a prospect of treatment. You know, when you're going through this with anyone you love, you're just so desperate for something or for something that works, for something that will help. And the idea that an agency like the FDA would come out and say, here you go, you know, with something that doesn't, doesn't rate a, a here you go. I mean, when you watch someone you love deeply, lose their intellect, their memory, their sense of who they are. I think Dr. Pearl talked about that. It, and you see their pain and confusion as, as they kind of recognize their loss. They, they know something's going on. They, they're frustrated. And then, you know, when they finally die, you don't know whether to mourn their death or to celebrate that they're not suffering anymore. And, and if you do mourn your death, you have to remember that you're actually mourning someone who died several years ago. And so when you look at uh, what happened with this drug uh, and how it was approved, uh, and you know, you, you probably had to deal with other drugs that you were able to give your dad, uh, what do you make of what happened here? Well, we gave him Memantine or Nemenda, actually it was called when it came out, the, the brand name drug. We, the day it came out, we knew it was coming out. I had followed things closely enough that I'd read the data and I knew that you know, it wasn't a cure and then it might slow things down a little bit, which is what it turned out to do. I think it uh, more than slowing things down, it elevated his mood a little bit and uh, sort of made him accept where he was. And that that was a big difference. I mean, it, it, it didn't reverse the disease, but it, it made our, all of our lives a little easier. But you know, the approval on that one, you know, was everybody kind of knew this isn't that great, didn't cost all that much money. I, I did at the time. I mean, it seemed to me, I can't remember the price because this was 2003. Uh, it was certainly not $56,000 a year, that's for sure. Uh, and, you know, the committee had discussed it. It was clear to me, at least, that the FDA had listened to the committee, you know, in this case, on a committee of 11, 10 voted the drug down, the, the 11th didn't vote. Now, when you cover the FDA for a while, the end of every story is, uh, when you cover a committee hearing is always, the FDA usually, but does not always follow the advice of its, of its committees. But I've never seen anything like this. I never saw anything where the FDA just said, well, um, okay, you don't like it. That doesn't make a difference to us. Three committee members have quit since then saying, you know, if you're not gonna listen to us, why are we here? 
So let's talk about this drug uh, from Biogen, its efficacy, its side effects, what we know to date, and also what's not known about potential side effects and what's known about potential side effects and whether this drug actually works. Dr. Pearl? The short answer is we don't know, which is why the whole conversation is being had about the FDA approval, because the FDA's job is not to approve drugs that don't work or that we don't know whether they work. It's to approve ones that actually do work, that have minimal or no consequences uh, in addition to the efficacy they provide. So let's look back at what happened. In 2017, Biogen started two what's called phase three trials. These are large numbers of individuals uh, being looked at. They were specifically selected to be early in the Alzheimer's process. And the endpoint and researchers, when they do a scientific study, before they begin, they're required by good scientific protocol to define what success looks like. And they defined it as a slowing of the memory loss. Two years later, uh, now we're in March of 2019, they find that in one trial it has absolutely no benefit at all. And the other trial, there's the smallest amount of potential positive impact. And when that happens, most researchers assume that the slightly positive study is just how chance happens in any research design. And the company stops pursuing the possibility of getting FDA approval. Lo and behold, October of 2019, the company announces that they've done a new analysis and they found that at the high dose level of patients that it had a somewhat positive response, although still in the other study, there was no major improvement. This kind of post hoc analysis is almost always used to then do another clinical trial when you now have a different hypothesis, a different study group, and you look at that. The challenge that, and you made this point, Chitra, is that there are side effects, brain swelling and even brain bleeding, and it's particularly likely to happen in people in high doses, which is exactly the group that they're finding is the one who might be responding. It's still all very, very vague, but the company now announces in the fall, in October of 2019, that they're going to be submitting a request for approval based upon this small subgroup from one of their studies. It's finally submitted in July of 2020. The advisory group, as Joanne mentions, uh, meets in November of 2020. It in no way supports the moving forward. And then finally, in June of 2021, the company announces, sorry, the FDA announces that it's going to give it this accelerated approval for the medication, much to the shock of the scientific community and certainly the members of the advisory group. And I'd like to add something in on, on the side effects from the family point of view, which is that the patients need to get this every four weeks in a doctor's office or hospital. And then, uh, just before, and then I think after the seventh dose and the 12th dose, they have to get an MRI. And if you've ever dealt with somebody who has Alzheimer's, 
at least everyone I know who's had it, it it's moving them about, moving them into a medical situation. It can be really terrifying for them. It's very, very stressful for them. You know, if you happen to live in the Northeast where, where my dad was, you've got the winter to contend with getting people back and forth on the roads. And then you get into the medical, my father had been a physician. So he got very confused when he was in a medical situation like he thought he was supposed to be working. But I think for anybody, it's very stressful to go into an MRI machine and for people with Alzheimer's especially. So it's not actually a side effect, but it is something that you have to contend with. Yeah, even my dad, as you know, he didn't have Alzheimer's, but he had really bad dementia towards the end, uh, as you know, Joanne, and getting him out of the house to a doctor was proving impossible. I mean, I don't know what these people who have approved this are thinking that you're going to be able to get these patients in and out of their homes for this regular monitoring. They they have no idea what you have to go through as the, as a family member, getting your, your dad or mom or, you know, a sibling out of the house to actually get that, that kind of uh, preventive uh, surveillance. Well, and the treatment itself, the treatment itself is, is an infusion. And stop me if I'm wrong, Dr. Pearl, but I think it needs to be done in a pretty sophisticated doctor's office or in, in a hospital. Usually it's gonna be given in an infusion center, which could be a standalone or associated with a hospital. And you're right, it takes about one hour to administer the medication safely, the administration safely. The consequences is a different question. Yeah, so, so Joanne, you've done a lot of reporting on this whole accelerated approval process and the use of whatever proxy biomarkers and surrogate endpoints and all these fancy hoops that the FDA can and has jumped through to get this drug and some other drugs through the, through the pipeline. Um, and you have a new story in Stat Plus uh, that looks at this from the early days of HIV and the AIDS epidemic when activists were really, I mean, literally in at the FDA's doorstep, if not in it, pushing hard to get access to experimental drugs. And tell us what you kind of found in the course of that reporting, especially like, you know, how this expedited drug approval process works and, and how it's kind of gone so wrong. Yeah, because, you know, it's one of those things on paper, it's, it's a great solution to problems of difficult diseases like HIV and AIDS, HIV when there was no treatment for it, and uh, Alzheimer's now, uh, mus uh, muscular dystrophy has had uh, some drugs that have gone along with it that have come in under accelerated approval. Cancer, you know, you want accelerated approval because people are dying now. And, but the difference with cancer actually is you can usually tell pretty quickly if the drug is working when you go and do the subsequent studies. But let me take you back to the beginning, which was in 1988, where the, there was this enormous demonstration on the doorstep of the FDA that had come on top of other incidents. People were throwing fake blood at government officials saying, you know, we want experimental drugs now. And, you know, they were faced with something that was decimating some communities and there was nothing to do, but there were all these chemical entities out there that who theoretically might work. So in 1988, the, the FDA started with giving expedited approval to drugs where there wasn't really enough information, but saying, okay, go ahead. They started using markers like CD4 counts, which turned out not to be great, but eventually they looked at viral load, which actually, you know, how much virus is in the blood. That was a, a better marker. But it got too fast, too quick, even for some of the AIDS activists. There was a split in the HIV community when accelerated approval came in in 92, where you had some of the activists who were 
who had trained themselves in statistics and actually were, were very good coming in like Greg and Salvis, who's in my story uh, saying, whoa, you know, if we approve all this, when we don't know if it works, we're never gonna find out if it works. We've got to find ways to collect the data. And, you know, in all the years since with accelerated approval, getting more and more of a foothold, I think something like 13% of drugs are approved this way. That hasn't happened it, for a number of reasons. One is you've really got to pick the right surrogate marker. And this is so, you know, for cancer, a lot of times it's been uh, tumor progression. And that's actually turns out not to be a great marker because when you look at mortality overall, when you have the time to let things run out long enough until people either die or survive, with some of these, with, with, with uh, tumor growth for some cancers, you may be able to arrest the growth but you're not extending people's lives just because that's the way cancer works. And they've had that trouble with those drugs. Let me interrupt for a minute. For people who don't understand, why are they using so-called surrogate markers instead? What's the, what's the alternative and why are they going with those surrogate markers in the case of expedited approval? Great question, because it's fast. If you have to wait, like with Alzheimer's, if you have to wait, the disease progresses fairly slowly. And if you have to wait, by the time you can see an improvement, it might be three or four years down the line. So if, if you can find a marker, something that happens early on in, in the disease, you know, with an antibiotic, it's, you know, can you, can you get the, uh, can you find the bacteria or virus or whatever it is in the blood anymore? And even that's not a great surrogate marker. Actually, the, uh, in my story, I, uh, I quote Jerry Avorn, a physician at Harvard who's written widely about drugs. And he was up in arms about a tuberculosis drug that was tested that it, it did, it slowed the growth of the tuberculosis microbe in blood. It, when, when you tried to grow it out of serum, the people who got the drug, yeah, it slowed, it slowed the growth or actually, uh, stopped it in some cases. So isn't that great? You got to figure that's going to help. Well, that was great until you actually looked at the data for survival and survival was lower in the people who'd gotten the drug, you know, either because of the drug side effects or some other reason, but the drug didn't help with survival, but you had to wait a little bit. You know, it's much faster to just go and see, can you culture this microbe out of the blood? And in many cases, that is a fair enough marker, but in, not in all cases. So you'd say, okay, fine, approve it. The idea is approve the drug based on the surrogate marker and require, as accelerated approval does require, that you do subsequent, that, that the company do subsequent testing. But the problem is that the FDA hasn't turned around and said, okay, make it timely and make it now. For Adrahelm, they've got nine years which is an enormous amount of time. And I just saw something today in the pink sheet, which is a, an industry newsletter that the Adrahelm time is longer than a lot of other drugs have been. Uh, there's a, the muscular dystrophy drug that I talked about in the story. They now, the drug was approved in uh, 2016, 2015. They have until 2026 now because the, uh, the FDA approved it and said, approved it because it increased very slightly the amount of protein in the blood of kids with muscular dystrophy who are lacking a certain protein. Uh, but they didn't wait to see, does it keep them walking longer than a group who didn't get the drug? No, they've gone ahead and approved it. And now, and this drug is actually $300,000 a year. 
And they're not going to, the, these trials won't be done till 2026. Now, the company, I've been talking to the company all day today because they were upset that I was criticizing them for that long approval. It turns out that they actually were due to have the drug, the results from the lo a longer study that looked at kids' ability to walk by 2021, but the FDA wanted them to do some safety studies. They wanted them to increase the dosage. So they're sort of saying, you know, it's the FDA's fault that it's taking us this long, but really these studies should have been started as soon as they tested the drug. In fact, in, with, with almost all these drugs, the plan for the subsequent trial is within the application for approval. The only reason it wasn't in, or not the only reason, but it wasn't in Biogen's application is because they didn't apply for accelerated approval. They applied for a regular approval where you have to show effectiveness. The FDA switched them over to accelerated wow. approval and they didn't, for some reason, and I can't tell you, I don't know why, that never got, their, their plan for subsequent testing, Biogen's plan for subsequent testing didn't get into the original approval. All that got into the original approval was the FDA saying, okay, you've got nine years to tell us if this works, which is nine years of millions of people facing this difficult choice with not enough information. So there, there are really two sets of issues in terms of the listeners. The first one is the question of this whole accelerated approval process. And Joanne's absolutely right that in the 1980s and 90s, we were approving about 10 drugs a year overall through the FDA. And now it's 40 to 50 drugs a year. So that the requirements to move through the process seem to have dropped significantly in terms of the rigor that's been required. But there's a second question that to me is fascinating about this particular approval, which is that the science upon which it was approved is so challenging and problematic. First of all, because these amyloid beta plaques are not yet proven to correlate with the disease to cause the disease and reversing them or impacting them is necessarily going to be positive. But I found it fascinating over the past month to compare the request by Pfizer that wanted approval for a third booster for COVID against this particular approval. Now, we may be getting a little bit off track, but the Pfizer data says that antibody uh, levels in the blood clearly drop. We know that antibodies are effective at attacking viruses. And so the data that might otherwise drive the process, and certainly the risk of death in the short term is such that you're not going to wait to see in a very long time period what happens, is so much stronger. And yet the FDA steps forward and says, absolutely not, we're not going to approve this even before any kind of full analysis is done. And in contrast, when it comes to this drug for Alzheimer, they say yes, despite, as Joanne said, the essentially unanimous opposition to doing so. I think the interesting question is, why did the FDA in one case approve a drug with almost no scientific basis showing that it is efficacious? And in another one, chose to say, no, I think we're now going to look deeper under the covers at what's going on inside the organization. So, I mean, that's absolutely relevant in this case. I was thinking about the same thing. You know, you look at COVID and the clear benefits, life-saving benefits of Pfizer's drug and Moderna's drug and 
Johnson and Johnson, and then you look in this case, and and the FDA's delay on the Pfizer one is fascinating. So, but but looking looking deeper into the hood, Doctor Pro, what do you make of that? I mean, what does it say about the culture of the FDA or the way this these types of drugs are approved? I mean, people are scratching their heads about this. As you said, the book that I recently wrote on caring how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients. I wrote a piece on Forbes this week, actually, about this decision and pointed out that the FDA's esteem, culture is about respect and esteem and value. It really came out of the 1960s when it chose not to approve a drug called thalidomide, when the European regulators said yes, and the consequences were horrific amongst children born without arms and without legs as a consequence of this thalidomide drug. And its reputation was based upon the fact that its number one priority was minimizing danger and risk to patients. And I think what we're seeing now is a change in how the FDA gets its respect and esteem. And rather than being the protector of the patient against the horrific consequence, it now is being judged by how fast it can move drugs forward, regardless of the science that might have been required in the past. As Joanne said, regardless of the cost that's involved, even looking sideways around the issue of the risks, they're obviously not going to prove something with proven absolute risks, but the shift in this culture. And I think that that's what we're seeing. Of course, there are going to be political forces there. They're going to be lobbying forces there. There are going to be a lot of backstories, but to me, they fall into this cultural realm. And I think the FDA has now moved beyond where it should be, where the good balance point is going to be. And approval is now what it needs to do, the gold standard for its success, which wasn't its original creation reason. And we're now seeing this, which in retrospect, I think almost everyone would agree was a bad decision, with the exception of the families of patients who have Alzheimer's disease and understanding how motivated they are for anything that might work because this disease is progressive and they want anything that can happen. And at some point, the science has to say, the data is saying your chances are so small that it's not worth it. And then the economics has to ask, what are the other consequences that happen as a, as a result? This money could be used to support families in helping to take care of the individuals with Alzheimer's disease. It could be used for prevention, for saving lives, for a variety of ways that those dollars could have a major positive impact on those specific families as well as on others. And all of that is getting lost. And we can talk about the price tag, which experts looking at the question of what is the proven value against the cost have said that this drug should cost between $3,000 and $11,000. And as is true for the entire pharmaceutical industry in the United States, which is equally problematic or even more so, what we see is that the price tag is arbitrarily set by the company with FDA approval, at least in the past, Medicare and Medicaid have had great difficulty saying no to 
uh, providing the payments for it, and it becomes a guaranteed cash cow for the company. And I'll add one last piece to what Joanne said earlier. Yes, there are phase four trials. Yes, they take at least nine years, but more importantly, they're not gonna prove anything because the FDA did not say doctors can't administer this drug to people who do not meet the requirements. Doctors can still give drugs for in quotes, off-label approval. And if you're someone with someone in your family who has Alzheimer's, are you gonna go into a drug trial where half of the people get placebo? Or are you gonna find a physician who will administer the drug? I think the latter is most likely what's gonna happen. And we'll never know whether this drug does any good or not. Right, they found that with the HIV drugs as well, that you can't get people to go into a trial when, if you're going into a trial, it's because you think the drug has some chance of working. And if with a desperate disease like Alzheimer's and there is a drug, you're gonna to try to get that. But I wanna bring one other price factor in that, that I didn't consider in my story and, and that is an important part of the equation. And that is that since 1992, drug companies have paid for their own reviews at the FDA. An act went into effect, the Prescription Drug Users Fee Act. And what, that, what had happened was the FDA was just getting pounded by Congress for not approving drugs more quickly, for not getting to the root of food outbreaks, food disease outbreaks more quickly. They were just getting pounded and pounded and pounded. And they didn't have the money to do it. They didn't have the staff to do it. And finally, you know, and, and they weren't allowed. I can tell you, I, I know how the Department of Health and Human Services works with its employees. They, if they're called before Congress to testify about something, they are not allowed to complain and to say, we're not getting the money, we need more staff. They're not allowed to say that. But it was true and somebody finally recognized it. But the response, instead of giving them more taxpayers dollars, they said, well, why don't we let the drug companies pay for this? Drug companies can pay for their own reviews, which, is true, but a lot of the consumer groups were saying, wait a minute, you know, that that that's going to create a problem. And I think it really has. And I, I don't know that I can put numbers to this, but subtly or not, the upper level folks at the FDA know that they're the money to run the agency is coming from the drug companies, that the drug, which gives the drug companies a tremendous voice with Congress as well, where they can go in and say, you know, we're paying for these reviews and they should be done in a certain way. And it's, it's just, it puts a pressure on the system that I don't think should be there. And I don't think it's good for consumers or for patients. There's so many layers of conflicts of interest and potential conflicts of interest in how these things are structured. It is just, it's just mind blowing, you know? I mean, uh, first of all, Joanne, from what you said, you know, going back to the AIDS epidemic and all of the activism around it, right? Uh, the FDA, as you pointed out, is just not good at responding to pressure from consumer advocacy groups, from patients, patients' families. And then you've got this, uh, from all the reporting that's out there by the Washington Post and the Journal and yourself and the New York Times, this really cozy relationship between the FDA and Biogen in the months before the approval. And is that unusual? I mean, uh, how and how has the FDA fared in other similar situations if there there has been these kinds of cozy relationships in terms of joint uh, you know studies or joint presentations and those kinds of things, which again create another layer of conflict of interest. I think the that the level of cooperation 
is unique to Agilehome. There has been a certain amount that has, of cooperation that has made sense over time, where you know the companies can go to the FDA and say and ask them, you know, what kind of proof do you think will be necessary, especially with the more conventionally approved drugs, but even with the accelerated approval drugs, they can say, what what are you going to need for us for for you to say that this works? And I think that's fair enough. And the FDA can say to them, well, you know, we we're going to want to see this, we're going to want to see this, we're going to want to see that. Fair enough, but this this the level with Agilehome that I I have never before heard of what what Stat has reported about you know with, with the company doing the joint presentations with uh, with FDA people I, I've never heard of that and and just the level of cooperation does seem seem to be out of hand but one thing I want to say is the the biggest critics I talked to were all just really sad. I mean, they, they've seen this with other drugs with smaller populations. I mean, the, the muscular dystrophy drug, for example, but that's a population of tens of thousands, very active patient groups, but but a smaller population. And the cancer drugs as well, um, when you divide it out, the, the groups are smaller. So this is, a, this is a big, big group, but they all say, you know, this could work. You know, if we had a system where the companies weren't involved in paying for their own studies, where the surrogate markers were clearly agreed upon by the medical community. You know, the medical community doesn't really believe as a whole that these proteins that clog up the brain will, if, if they disappear, that Alzheimer's will go away, you know? And so that's, it's a not good surrogate marker. They, they feel like if there were real rigor on the surrogate markers, and if there were real requirements, for example, if you're allowed to market your drug under an accelerated approval, uh, uh, Joe Ross at Yale was saying, give them a year, give them two years for the confirmatory trials. And if they're not done at the end of two years, boom, your drug is out until you have those trials. Don't give them nine years. And when you do give them nine years, you know there, there are a lot of examples of, of the FDA not demanding that they meet their deadlines. In fact, I, I don't even, I'm not even sure I could tell you how often they do meet out any kind of punishment. They've done it actually with a couple of cancer drugs. They've pressured the companies lately. A few of them have pulled drugs for certain indications, although the drugs are still on the market for other purposes. But the point is that it could be done well and it's not, and, and, it, and I, there's a legitimate reason to do it, but it's just, it's in the execution that it's not working. As you say, Joanne, you know, and I wrote about it in the Forbes piece uh, this week, we, we could have a maximum time period, particularly when the FDA goes against the advisory groups, whether it's two years or three years. I think there should be a requirement to involve external people like the NIH at overseeing the scientific rigor, because this is not a company just doing research on its own, planning to submit a request for approval to the FDA. They've already received it, but on a um, temporary type basis. And that's where I think the FDA could be saying, if you want this approval, you've got to repeat your studies. You've got to document that everyone who receives the drug falls into the criteria set up by the FDA, which in this case would be only very early people with Alzheimer's disease. And you've got to work with independent scientists from the NIH under strong conflict of interest, non-disclosure agreements. 
And then after two to three years, we will have rigorous science. And if that happened, I think most people would be very sympathetic to giving this type of, I'll say less than scientific approval. But as it stands right now, as you said, it's nine years, who knows if the science is gonna be any good. By that time, people will have forgotten it and unless there are terrible consequences, which we will regret significantly, the chances of reversal are so small and the consequences of the cost. This drug is projected potentially to cost as much as all of the other drugs provided through Medicare. And as we know, Medicare is likely to run out of money sometime in 2024. And this, is this could speed that up by a full year if not done well. That is just absolutely astonishing. Um, and I, the fact that the agency's own acting commissioner, Dr. Janet Woodcock, at least from what I've read, says uh, or wasn't involved in the approval process, is that normal? And, and now she's asked her internal watchdog, the FDA's inspector general, to investigate these, uh, how this approval took place. I mean, that seems even more bizarre. Do you, do you have any insights into that? I wish I did. <laughs> and I would watch Step and the New York Times. They've both been doing terrific coverage, but it, it doesn't seem to make sense. It, it would be unusual, but I, I think time will tell. Yeah. No, I, to me, it is un, it's not believable that a decision of this magnitude, these dollars going against the unanimous thought to not approve this drug by the advisory group would not require at least a conversation with the acting director. I just can't believe that somehow this decision was made at a much lower level. It would never happen in any agency, any company, when you have this type of very visible, public, inevitable conversation and criticism that decision always involves the most senior person, which in this case is the acting director. I don't know why she says that she's not involved at all. It's just not even imaginable to me whether it would be in an agency of the government or in a uh, business and corporation. I imagine the Freedom of Information Act requests are flying. <laughs> yeah, and why is there no full-time commissioner in place yet? And would that have made a difference? I mean, do we know who that might be? Well, the two leading contenders are Dr. Woodcock and uh, Dr. Josh Sharfstein, who uh, was uh, well, he's Baltimore City Health Commissioner for a while. He was at the FDA for a while, and he is known as a, uh, as a reformer, very consumer positive, and the drug companies don't like him. And they, they've made no secret about that. It's been discussed, or actually, it, it's not a secret. I, I, they may not be talking about it, but it's widely known that the drug companies do not like Josh Sharfstein, they do like Janet Woodcock. It's fascinating to me. This is the longest I, I remember of an incoming president not having uh, a head of the FDA named. Uh, this is a very long time with a lot of key issues in front of the agency, vaccine, you know, moving from emergency uh, um, use approval for the vaccines for COVID, this drug, a bunch of other issues going on. It, it's it's a little scary to me that we don't have a, a full-time commissioner who is a, a, a permanent full-time commissioner. I think it speaks to this internal politics. And once again, I think it speaks to this culture, a culture now that is 
valuing the ability to move drugs forward and other people who think that that's not the right role for the FDA, that it should have a lot more caution and it should behave a lot more like the European FDA equivalents that are gonna be looking at the true efficacy and tying that in with the price and leading around to some of the negotiations that are happening now in Congress around the role of the government being able to figure out the right price to pay for a drug based upon its likelihood of doing good. And all of that is now caught in this political uh, turmoil. And I think that that's why we don't have a full-time commissioner right now, because that's getting sorted out at even a higher level than the acting commissioner. So how do you see the um, how do you see the FDA if, as a doctor, you know, and drugs that might be approved by this agency after this this particular debacle, Dr. Pearl? I, as I said, believe that we need more science, and I think we've drifted away from science when it comes to the entire pharmaceutical process. To say nothing about the FDA approval we saw with uh, hydroxychloroquine during the. Uh, early phases of COVID-19. Uh, there, there is science that should be applied and there needs to be a lot of transparency. And right now we don't have either. One could justify a lot of decisions if they have an associated, I'll say, uh, breaking mechanism to, to stop them or to move them, where we have very clearly defined approaches to being able to test new drugs, to price new drugs, to require as an example that we understand how much better they are than the alternatives that otherwise exist in the marketplace today. Uh, I think there's a lot of action right now in Congress that both of you are aware of, looking at the anti-competitive actions of the drug companies. The Biden administration has looked at that particularly companies that are able to pay generic drug manufacturers for delaying bringing products onto the marketplace. This entire industry is now tilted against what's my view, the benefit of the nation and the patients. And I, as a physician, just would say, we need more science. And if anything, we have less science now than we've had in the past. This agency used to be the gold standard. It was the world standard. And, you know, I've been living in England for the last few years, and it, it's not looked, for, at least from Europe, it is not looked on the way it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago. It, I think people over there think that we've gone nuts. Well, there was a lot of pressure. The solidamide decision, I still believe, was the moment of truth. And the commissioner at the time, came under tremendous attack from the drug companies at the time saying this was a great medication. It should be approved rapidly. You're very unsympathetic to pregnant women for whom it was administered. And the director said, no, we need to make sure that the science works and protect patients against it. And it turned out to be correct, as I say, as against Europe, which is why I think the Europeans still look at this as being the golden moment for the agency. That day is long past, unfortunately. And we've gotten a lot of politics and a lot less science. I'm waiting for the payers to come in. You know, we've seen it really now for the first time in a big way with Agilhelm, with, with Medicare saying, whoa, we, we need to take a step back. And the insurers are evidently 
doing that too. Because the insurers, the health insurers or the payers, it used to just be a pass through. If drug prices went up, you know, they just raised the rates for that insurance or, uh, and it wasn't, uh, they, they just passed the rates on. But with this, I, you know, they're going to, people aren't going to be able to afford insurance that covers drugs anymore, given their costs. And I, I, I think it'll be interesting to watch in the next few weeks or months, whether the insurers start and the payers start to uh, play a bigger role in some way. Everyone is stuck in a unsolvable problem when the FDA makes a decision like this, as you said, almost always Medicare and Medicaid follow exactly in the, in the process that's been re recommended by the FDA and then the insurers fall back behind the government. Everyone goes lockstep and the cost of care just rises as a consequence. But almost always there is an offsetting economic benefit. Uh, and the challenge in this particular situation is a drug that you're going to take for the rest of your life and one for which the benefit is not yet determined. That's very different than as an example when there was the hepatitis drug that was very expensive, probably also much higher priced than it should have been. But at least it was a one-time or a set of one-time administration and it avoided future costs. None of that applies in this situation. If it was a block uh, buster type medication as the hepatitis one was that actually solves the problem, everyone would be saying whatever it costs, it's worth it. Thank you very much. But to have a drug that even on the pharmaceutical companies testing showed that one of the arms had zero improvement and the other one, a small minimal one, and then a price tag of 56,000, there's something absolutely absurd about this whole process. And I think it's coming to roost right now. And again, I keep going back to Congress because Congress is debating this. It'll be interesting. Some of the senators and representatives coming from very pharmaceutically positive communities are going to have to decide, are they going to continue the processes of the past of pushing the agendas of the drug companies, or this time, are they going to stand up and be counted? So we can't end the story without asking, where's the Alzheimer's Association in all of this? Uh, where, I mean, what's their role and are they protecting patients' interests or not? Well, they pushed really, really hard for this. You know, they showed up at the FDA committee hearings. They've been talking about this a lot. They've been talking to legislators. They've been making their views known to the FDA. They pushed very hard for this drug. And they, they have the little bit of backtracking they've done. They have come out and said, well, gee, we don't think it should be so expensive. But they really wanted this drug. Is that serving their population or is it fulfilling a goal that they had for themselves, the association had uh, that maybe had lost its meaning when the, when the drug didn't test out so well. You know, I think it's the latter. There's also the fact that the drug company is a major contributor to many of the patient-led groups that they'll become part of the national organization and stopping that donation certainly has economic consequences. You know, I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and we study financial incentives. Again, it's hard to imagine that that is not weighing in on the process 
when a significant amount of your funding is coming from the same organization that's pushing for an FDA approval that's potentially going to benefit your people and your doubts tend to become less powerful, less visible than they might otherwise be if you could have a purely objective viewpoint. You know, I wonder in the financial planning space, right, you have uh, to show fiduciary, right? You have to show if you're, you know, are you a fiduciary uh, as a financial planner? And people can go to those planners who are, who have an exercise, their fiduciary right to put the the client's interests before their own in terms of making commissions on recommendations of what, you know, financial products they should buy. And in the case of trade associations, you know, there are a number of instances where this kind of funding from the groups that, you know, like the drug companies or other uh, groups can really sort of color their decision-making. And it seems almost like there has to be a fiduciary responsibility in all of these Washington trade groups that they should follow. And I don't know if that exists or needs to exist, but I'm seeing more and more of that gray area when it comes to trade associations. When there's a lack of transparency, your first thought is something is being hidden. And I think that that's what's going on right now. When you look at the dollars that are being given, acknowledge what they are. You should be proud of taking the dollars and using it well on behalf of people uh, who are at risk of a health consequence. Why not make it easily publicly available? And again, we could go in a broad conversation, whether we're looking at the hospitals right now or some of the insurance company issues, or in this case, at the pharmaceutical world, medicine today is a very closed environment. There's this blue wall of silence that people talk about. No one wants to disclose this information. We're now in 2021. The time has come to make it easily available to everyone who wants to look at it. If you're embarrassed, you probably shouldn't be doing it. You should be willing to show the information with pride because you should believe it is the right thing to do. I don't know exactly where we are, whether it's 80, 20 or 20, 80, but we're certainly as far away from what should happen from a moral, ethical, scientific, economic, you can go to a list of terms, perspective. So in closing, who would you say are the big winners and losers in this, in this fight over Aduhelm? Well, Biogen is the winner and I think everybody else is the loser. I would agree. This is a company that's going to make a lot of money. I think the only way that it, it had a totally losing hand when it stopped its phase three trials in 2019. Uh, this is an attempt to raise the uh, Sphinx from the ashes uh, to be able to now be able to generate a massive amount of dollars, literally for at least nine years, administering this drug to 6 million people, although theoretically a smaller number at the front piece. I think the only question is really going to be, how does this finish playing through? Maybe the game's over and it's all done. I just can't believe with the amount of negative press that's happening and the progressive exposure of some of the ways in which corners were cut potentially inappropriately, I think we still have more chapters to go, and I'm hoping that that's going to be the consequence. We need more scientific study. If this drug works, that is terrific. We should make it available. How we price it is a different question. And if this drug doesn't work, don't give false hope to families 
Let them face the truth and use the same dollars we would have spent in ways to give them the support that they need, taking care of their loved ones for whom this terrible disease is exacting a major, major pain and problem. Yeah, and the real losers are the patients and families. And do you think they should pull the drug back? Do you think the FDA can and should pull back uh, Aduhelm till more, more work is done on it? Wow, they, they pulled back slightly in, in that they've limited, instead of saying for anyone with Alzheimer's, which was not what the company had asked for, they've gone back to, to do it on, on who the company tested it on, which is mild to moderate. Uh, will they pull it back completely? Should they pull it back completely? Uh, I would, I, from my family point, my, my viewpoint not as a journalist, but as a, somebody who had this in their family, yes, I don't, I don't think the option should be there for families. It's too terrible a position to put them in uh, when, when they're faced with an already difficult situation to put them in the position of saying, we want to experiment on your dad and you're going to have to pay a lot of money and you're going to have to put him through all these tests. And we can't really say that there's a good reason to do that right now, except in an experimental basis. Uh, I just don't think that's a, a good place to be for families. Well, I'll go back to what I said before, that even though that's what the FDA and quote gave its approval for, doctors could administer to anyone that they choose, so-called off-label administration of medication, often promoted, by the way, by drug companies uh, for different expensive medications that are out there right now. I think what we need is more science. And that, to me, becomes the resting place as I said, I'd like to see this have a specific time frame that's far shorter than nine years. I'd like the NIH or some other independent agency to get involved in doing it with the drug company. I'd like the data to be presented to be very, very clear. Because if I were a family with a member with Alzheimer, you know, I wouldn't like to just know this might work or not work. I'd like to have the data, the information I think to be able to make this decision, yes, science is difficult sometimes at the most detailed level, reading a case report out of a journal, but we can translate it. Journalists like Joanne and yourself are experts at being able to take complex sets of information and make it understandable by patients. I think we can promise people that we're going to start with the individuals who are most likely to benefit. We're going to make sure that they are the right ones chosen in line with the FDA's new approval. We're going to have a scientific study with data and great transparency, and we will have a definitive answer for families in a short amount of time, whether it's two years or three years. I think that's the best resting place. We're not going to go all the way back to say this drug doesn't work. And at the same time, I think it's a big mistake to give this type of carte blanche for next nine years. But leave it on the market till that study is done. Now, make the market be the study. So what I'm saying is shrink the number of people for whom it's going to be administered to the group most likely to get better, administered to them as part of a scientific study, not just as available to anyone who wants it, and promise people that we'll have the definitive answer. By the way, exactly what we did with the COVID vaccines. Great. Well, Dr. Pearl, Joanne, thank you so much for joining me on Techtopia and for this fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for hosting it. And hopefully it will be educational, both for the families that are facing this tragic disease and for the rest of the nation. I second that.
Hey, Joanne, it's great to finally get you on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> great to be here. Dr. Pearl is the former CEO of the nation's largest medical group, Kaiser Permanente, and the author of a new book called Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, the proceeds of which go to Doctors Without Borders. Dr. Pearl also co-hosts with Jeremy Kaur, who also happens to be my wonderful executive producer, the popular podcasts Fixing Healthcare and Coronavirus, The Truth. Joanne Silberner is an award-winning health and science freelance journalist living in Seattle and my friend and former colleague at NPR. Silberner has covered the FDA for decades while at U.S. News & World Report and at NPR, where she worked for 18 years. And for eight years, Joanne taught young journalists at the University of Washington. Joanne has won multiple awards, including the Keck Communication Award from the U.S. National Academy of Sciences and the Best Cancer Reporting Award from the European School of Oncology. She has written a piece on how Aduhelm came to be approved, published last week in the online media outlet Stat Plus, and it's a fascinating look at how the FDA responds to pressure from drug companies and patient groups. Very relevant for this story. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.